And if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. The story about Adam and Eve is probably one of the most well-known, iconic stories in all of Scripture. It's a story that resonates with all of us because all of us can relate to it in several ways. One, we all know something has gone awry, right? I mean, you, you just watch the news if you don't know what I'm talking about. You can tell that this world isn't the way it was meant to be. It's, things aren't the way they should be. We see it abroad. We see it in our own hearts as we struggle with different things. And we relate to the idea of we want what we're told we can't have, right? All of us. Doesn't matter how much you have, there's always that one extra thing out there that has not been given to you, and what you have seems like not enough. That's why it's so popular, that's why it's so common, is because it's so universal, it's so relatable. So we're going to dig into this and examine exactly what happened, how, how the snake was so crafty, what, how he couched this temptation. Um, then we're going to look at the sin, and then we're going to look at God's solution to this. So here at Crosspoint Community Church, uh, we really value the, the children in the church. I'm, I'm sure all churches do. It's not unique to us. But one of the ways we try to incorporate that value into what we do is that every Sunday we have first grade and up in here because we believe that's what's happening here as we gather to worship is beneficial and helpful for, for all the church. Um, it's not just the, the adult time, right? Um, and so once a month we also bring in the four-year-old through kindergarten. And whenever we bring them in, I like to try to help them engage. And so just to make sure they're listening every once in a while, I'll say, kids, are you listening? And you'll say, You'll say, yes, Pastor Kai, okay? So I'll say, kids, are you listening? And you'll say, yes, Pastor Kai. And I'm going to add I'm gonna add a second one, okay? Today we're going to be talking about a snake. Now, I, I thought about bringing an actual snake today because I thought that would be fun, but I thought that might get too crazy. We'll just save that for like a teen de-stressing event or something. So we'll, we'll wait on that. But what we are going to do is when I say the word snake, I want you all to make a hissing sound. Can you all do that? If I say snake... Yeah, make that sound. Let's try again one more time. And then the snake. Okay, and then afterward, I want you to reach up and wipe off the neck of the person sitting in front of you. Okay, because that's just a polite thing to do. So we'll go with that today. So that's the first thing we're going to look at. 
um, is how they were tempted. And the idea here, um, it's not mentioned directly in this passage, but is that, that Satan himself was somehow um, presenting himself as a snake or, or he was working through a snake in order to, in order to tempt Adam and Eve. And what we're going to see about this, this enemy, this tempter, is that he's very, 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 very subtle. Um, look in chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what it says about him. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the word crafty is a little uh, kind of interesting because I think when we hear the word crafty or cunning, sometimes that carries kind of a negative sense. Like we think that's, that's a bad quality. And actually, if you, if you study this, you read commentaries, what you find is that the original language, it's actually a, mostly a positive attribute. Now, like, like all attributes, it can be used in a good or bad way, right? You might think of it like, like leadership, right? Um, someone who's a, who's a very great leader, like someone that everyone flocks to and gets behind, can still use that ability, that leadership ability, to a very negative end, right? And you think about someone like Adolf Hitler, had incredible leadership skills, but he used that in a very negative way. And it's similar to this, that the craftiness was actually a good quality, something one would long to have, being crafty, being cunning, or subtle, but he used it in a way that was very damaging. Um, and you see how, how, how effective it is. It's, it's almost impressive if you really examine how Satan uses his words to subtly shift Eve's way of thinking. It's, it's, you can't help but almost admire how crafty he really is um, in this context. And so let's just look, um, look at what he does here. So chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than all the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And look at this. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? Did God say that? If you look back in chapter 2, he actually didn't. God said, you can eat of any tree in the garden, you just cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, because when you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Satan comes in and says, hey, did God actually tell you? And you can imagine the tone, right? Like, the, the nerve of this guy. Did he actually say to you, you can't eat of any of the trees. And what he's doing, the message behind that question is, God's got something up his sleeve here. God is withholding from you. God is not telling you the full truth. God is holding back from you. His, his intentions are not as pure as you might like to believe. So the message behind the statement, the, the message behind the question, though it's given very subtly, is God is being unfair to you. God is withholding from you. And then he moves on and he basically, he basically minimizes sin. He basically says, the, the thing that you think is a big deal is, that, look in chapter, chapter 3, verse 2, it says this, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in, fruit of the, trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, He will not surely die. He minimizes sin. He says, God, God has said that, if, that this is a really big deal, right? That don't do this or really bad things would happen. But look, it is not that big of a deal. You're not going to die if you eat of the fruit. God is exaggerating 
the importance of his commands. You're not going to get struck by lightning. Nothing that bad is going to happen. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds familiar. Now, there's not a, we may not have a snake tempting us like they did, but we've all heard those little voices in our heads. And kids, are you listening? Kids, the way Satan tempts us is he starts to put little ideas in our heads that say, nothing bad's going to happen if you sin. If you don't obey God, it's going to be fine. It's not going to be that big of a deal. We believe that lie as adults, too. And that's, that's part of the reason I think this story is so relatable and universal is that Satan is, is he's doing the same thing today as he did then. He's subtly whispering these little lies. He's twisting truth in our minds to make us believe we can't really trust God, right? And to make us believe that sin really isn't that big of a deal. Those are the things he's trying to make us believe. He doesn't come out right out and say it. It's kind of like, um, subtlety is interesting. You see it in commercials, right? Um, how many of you guys have seen commercials from Axe, the deodorant and body spray? Raise your hand if you've seen the Axe commercials. They're ridiculous, right? I mean, uh, the, 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 they don't come out and say it this way because no one will believe them, but the message behind the commercial is this. If you use Axe, guys, beautiful women will flock from the ends of the earth and want to be with you, right? I mean, that's... That's essentially the message they're saying. Like, by putting on this deodorant, you will become a full-on babe magnet, right? You'll be fighting them off with a stick if you use this thing. And I know that's false. I tried it when I was 19, and it's not that simple. Um, but, but really, like, if they were to come out and say that, you would roll your eyes at the commercial, right? If they were to actually, the commercial were to say, hey, listen, if you use Axe, this will happen. You'd be like, that's ridiculous. But what they do is they, without saying it, they subtly plant that idea in your head and you kind of start to believe it, and you think you might start buying their product because of that. Subtlety is powerful, right? When you, give, when you plant little subtle seeds and ideas in someone's mind, it's a lot of times more powerful than just coming right out and saying it. And so that's the trick Satan is using. It's the same trick he uses today. Kids, are you guys still listening? Okay, kids, listen to this. When Satan plants little ideas of sin in your mind, it's, it's, he doesn't do this. He doesn't say... Hey, listen, you should disregard God by not obeying your parents. That's not what he says. He doesn't plant that idea. He doesn't come out and say it like that. Instead, he says something like this. Your parents, they don't understand. Look, you can, you can follow God and not obey your parents on every single thing. I mean, they're sinners too, right? See the difference? This message is the same thing. Dishonor God by disobeying your parents and neglecting to listen to them. But he doesn't present it that way. He presents it to us in a subtle, shifty, cunning way that more and more likely to believe and accept. Teenagers, I think that's applicable to you too. We've talked about this before, that in God's economy, obeying your parents is obeying God, that he has put them over you, given them authority over you so that things would go well for you if you listen to them and know they're not perfect, but there is protection for you in obedience, even though your parents may not be doing everything right all the time. That's the reality. That's what God has said. But Satan wants to come in and twist that. He wants to put these little ideas in your mind that, look, my parents, they don't always know. They don't quite understand everything. I don't, 
look, I can obey God and love Jesus and still I don't have to pay attention to every little thing my parents say, right? It's not that big a deal. You will not surely die. It's the same tricks he's using today. He doesn't say to us in our ears, you should probably hurt your family by turning away from your spouse and seeking satisfaction elsewhere. He doesn't say that to us as married people. Instead, he says something like this. Look, this is a mess. And you are not happy in this relationship. And God wants you to be happy, right? Same message. But he speaks it subtly in a way that's convincing, in a way that draws us away from God. He doesn't say, your life would be better if you were an alcoholic. Instead, he says, man, you have been busting it all week. And it's, it's not going to be that big of a deal. You will not surely die if you give yourself a break and drown some of that out this evening. And that evening turns into another and another. And now that's the way you handle all your problems. He doesn't say, look, you know more about love and marriage than God does, right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't whisper that lie. Like, you're probably smarter than God. He doesn't say it like that because we wouldn't believe him. Instead, he says, love your wife unconditionally? Come on. Look, that may work for some, but uh, not in this situation. All that's going to do is make her think she can do whatever she wants with no consequence. Same message, but it's subtle. He doesn't say, hey, look, ultimately sports are more important than God, so rearrange everything in your schedule around sports. Doesn't say it. Instead he says, look, this will just be for a season. I mean, you can worship God anywhere, right? But they're not going to reschedule this game for you. And he subtly gets us to shift our priorities away from God. He doesn't say, hey, you should ignore the command to be devoted to God's word. He doesn't say, just stop reading your Bible. You don't need to be devoted to God's word. That's, that's for the birds. He doesn't say that. He comes in and he says, hey, let's not get legalistic about this, okay? You don't have to read your Bible every single day, okay? Let's not get all legalistic here. And then that day turns into two, turns into a week, turns into months without cracking open the scriptures and listening to what God has to say to you. He's subtle. He's subtle. If you think about it this way too, all, all sin is a result of us not believing in God, of us not trusting God. He sows these seeds of doubt. Now that he's got the door cracked open and he's kind of got Eve's attention, he was subtle, then he just kind of comes on out and says it. Look at verse 4. He says this, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And embedded in that statement is, is, is hidden in that statement is this message. You can't trust God. You can't trust him. He created you. Yeah, he's sitting up there with all the power all the might, he's withholding from you. You can't trust him. And really think about it with me for a second. Is not every single sin in some way a result of us not trusting God? We don't trust that he knows best. We don't trust that he has our best intentions in mind. We just simply fail to trust him. 
And it's so ironic here that the snake, who God has given them dominion over, is now telling them that they can't trust the God that gave them dominion over the snake, right? I mean, it's, have you ever seen those, uh, those things about how it should have ended, right? Like, here's how this should have ended, right? Here's how it should have gone, right? Eve's walking in the garden. A snake comes up and says, nah, got it, thanks. Don't even, wasn't even ready for it that time. A, uh, a lizard comes up and <laughs> who's slithering on the ground and says, did God really say to not eat of any of the trees in the garden? And the first thing that should have happened is Eve should have said, wow, a talking snake, right? And she said, hey, Adam, come here, look at this. Look at this talking lizard here. What in the world is up with this? Wait a second, this lizard is saying things that aren't true. Let's kill it. Bam, done, right? Okay, then we're all, no more suffering, right? That's how it should have ended. Because God had given them dominion over every living creature. And in fact, the, 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 whole, the whole temptation, the lie, the, the, the allurement that, that, the, that Satan is giving them is to say, look, God is worried you're going to be like him. He's worried that if you eat this, you're going to become like him. Here's the irony. They were already like God, right? That God made man in his image. He made all the earth. He made all the creatures. And as his crown jewel of creation, he made in his image man. Man had already been given dominion over everything, including the snake that's now spinning lies to them about God's intentions. They already had dominion. They already were like God. But then this enemy decided to try to make it worse. This enemy decided to try to bring them down, to try to skew their vision on that. And the end result is they, they stopped trusting God. So that's what we're going to look at next is the sin they stopped trusting God. And God, this is why all sin is a big deal, because all sin is a result of us not trusting God. And we're going to look at specifically what that meant for them. First of all, they stopped trusting his power, that they thought that God was maybe somehow weak and insecure and might be threatened by them. Oh, God's worried that if we eat of this tree, then he's going to have some competition here. Really? God's worried that like by eating of this tree... All of a sudden, he has to be afraid of you, right? That you're going to overthrow him or you're going to be equal to him. He created you from the dust. So they start not believing in God's power. They stop believing. They stop trusting in God's judgment. God, God doesn't know what's best for me. Why, why has God, who, who gives him the right to decide what tree I can and can't eat out of? It's a pretty good answer to that. <laughs> well, he created you from the dust, and so that kind of makes him the boss, right? But they believe this lie of, well, what gives him the right to, to judge? Why can't I make that decision for myself? Guys, it's the same trap we fall into. In fact, one of the, one of the questions that often gets asked of this text, and it's, 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 you know, understandable why we would ask that, but why in the world would God let this snake, the snake... Why in the world would God let this snake in the garden to begin with, right? Why would God allow this tempter to be there? If God created Adam and Eve and all this and it was very good, why did he allow something to slither in there and mess it all up? Like, that doesn't seem loving. That doesn't seem like a good judgment call on God. But when we ask those questions, if we're not careful, we can end up in a spot where we're questioning God's judgment. We're saying, God, I think I could have done it better than that. I think I've got some other ideas on how that could have been. And if you really stop and think about how arrogant that is, 
for us to ever question the judgment of our creator. One of my favorite verses about this is in Deuteronomy chapter 29, and it says this, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever. The secret things belong to the Lord. There are things about God and his plan and his purpose and his will and who he is that are secret that we're just not meant to know. But we ought to be able to trust him in that. Has he not shown faithfulness and goodness and goodwill towards us in such a way that maybe we could trust him despite not knowing everything, despite everything not making complete sense. They stopped trusting God's power, his judgment. This is perhaps the most important. They stopped trusting his love and his intentions. Started believing this lie that God maybe doesn't want what's best for me. That maybe God eyes me with suspicion and disappointment. Maybe the lie Satan is telling is the only person who's really out for your best interest, Adam and Eve, is you. God is going to put himself first, like anyone else would do. If you really want to be looked after and protected, that's on you. You've got to figure that out. You can't trust some all-powerful creator to care about something as little and significant as you. You're not going to be at the top of the list. It's the same lies we believe today. We start to wonder, does God really know what's best for me? When there's a sin hanging out there that you think, man, if I had that, if I could go after that, that's why I would truly be happy. That's why I would truly be satisfied. God's withholding that from me. He doesn't really know what's best for me. He doesn't really know the true path to satisfaction and joy. He's withholding. He's keeping back. He's keeping his thumb on me. He just wants to lay all these rules around me and keep me from doing what I really want to do. All sin is a result of not trusting God, not believing his intentions and his love are what's best. It's not trusting his word. Trusting God's word begins with knowing it. It's funny, but we do this, talk about this at IGO sometimes, how we hear students always, you know, you read, you read passages in the New Testament where, um, where God, like, or in the Old Testament, too, where God audibly speaks to someone, and we think, man, how cool would it be if God spoke to us like that? Like, how, how cool would it be if God actually spoke to me? He did. It's right here. He said a lot of things about who he is, about what he's done, and the more you read his word, the more it builds your ability to trust in him. Because you see his faithfulness. You see him proven, tried and true again and again and again, always looking out for the best interest of those who love him. And when you stop listening to this, you stop trusting him. They stop trusting God's ability to satisfy. The problem with this sin in the garden or any other sin is not, is not that Adam and Eve desired to be happy and God didn't want them to be happy. It's not that they desired satisfaction and God didn't want that for them. It's that they started believing this lie that true satisfaction is found outside of God, right? That if I really want true joy and true fulfillment, it will be outside of God. And all I can say to this, and, and you know, it's one of those deals like if you're, if you're not a Christian in the room, if you, if, you, if you don't know Jesus, you've not placed your faith in him, you, you don't know him, all I can say is my, from my own experience, like, 
There is no true fulfillment and satisfaction outside of Jesus, period. You take away Jesus, give me everything else in my life, and it's empty. It's like eating candy for dinner. That's what sin is. Kids love candy, man. They look candy all day. But can you imagine if, like, you're hungry, you've been working all day, you come home for dinner, and it's just a big plate full of candy? That may, it may taste good for a second, but ultimately, there's no joy in that. Ultimately, there's no true fulfillment and nourishment in that. And that's the way, I can just tell you that's the way sin is. Anytime I've pursued sin and neglected God, it's, it's like eating candy for dinner. The only true way we will ever have joy and true fulfillment and true satisfaction and fullness in life is when we're banking on Jesus, trusting him, acknowledging him in all that we do. So we've looked at the snake. We've looked at the sin. And now I want us to look at the solution. So we're going to have to kind of move outside of Genesis 3 for this because we don't see it till later. But um, kids, are you still listening? Man, listening now more than ever. Okay. So there was one Adam that we just read about in Genesis chapter 3. But did you guys know that in the Bible, did you know that there's a second Adam? Did you guys know this? There's actually a second Adam. You know what his name is? God. What, what else would his name be? It's a classic Sunday school answer. Jesus. Yes. So here's what's really cool. Adam was like the figurehead of humanity. Adam was, he was the representative of our race. And so when he sinned, it's like, a, it's like Adam had a disease with sin. And then that disease spread to all of us. Just like when someone in your house is sick and you try to stay away from them so you don't catch it, that sin is kind of like a disease. And because one man sinned, that disease spread to all. That was the first Adam. But then in Romans chapter 5, the Bible tells us there was a second Adam. There was a new representative for humanity. Because the first Adam messed it up, God sent a second Adam, a new representative for all of us. And because of his one righteous act, healing would spread to all. So because one man, the first Adam, sinned, death and corruption and sin spread to everyone. But then God provided a solution. He sent a second Adam. He sent Jesus to come and perform one act of righteousness. And through one act of righteousness, healing and restoration would spread to all who believe in Jesus. Let's look at that. Romans chapter 5, verse 18, it says this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Okay, now we're going to go... We've got to get through this quick, but we're going to go a little deep theologically here, okay? Introduce you to maybe some new terms. Um, there's a term that um, commentators often use, that's basically this, the neutral righteousness. And it's this idea that Adam and Eve were created, and they were righteous before God. They were righteous in the sense that they were innocent. They had not done anything wrong, but they were not positively righteous. In other words, they had not lived a life of full, complete obedience and reliance on God that in order to, they were neutrally righteous, but in order to be truly righteous, to be fully righteous, there would need to be some point of conflict where they decided to trust God in the face of temptation. And that happened in the garden. In the garden, there was a test to see you're neutrally righteous. You're not, 
you're not out of sorts with God, but you also have not followed him and trusted him fully and completely yet because you haven't had the chance to. Here was the chance with this serpent, and they blew it. Now they were no longer even neutrally righteous. They were unrighteous. And so the, 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 what we believe about what Jesus did is that the, one of the reasons Jesus became a man is because we needed a second Adam. We needed a man to stand on our behalf and not only not do anything wrong, but live a perfect, righteous, obedient life as a man towards God that would then be credited to us. Think about it this way. Just like Adam's sin was then credited and passed down to us, Jesus' perfect life of righteousness, he passed the test. It's no coincidence that just before Jesus goes to the cross, when he's in anguish and he's facing the test, it's also in a garden. Because he's the new Adam. He's the second Adam. And in the garden, he's being tested just like the first Adam was. But unlike the first Adam, Jesus passed the test. He followed through with full obedience. So here's what Jesus did. Is the beauty of the cross is that Jesus took all the sin that was passed down to us. He took the punishment for that. He got our sin and we got his righteousness. He was credited with the sin and the rebellion of us. And we then were credited with his perfect, obedient righteous life, so that we are no longer just neutrally righteous before God, but we are positively righteous, that it is as though we have lived Jesus's perfect life of obedience, having passed the test in the garden. That has now been credited to those who believe in Jesus. Positive righteousness was gained through the life of Jesus and credited us. Not only did he remove our sins, he credited us credited us with righteousness. Would all of our doubts that we have towards God that cause us to sin, would they not fade away if we would remember that? I mean, if we would really consider Jesus and what he did and keep that in the forefront of our minds, would that not overshadow any doubt we have about God's love and intentions towards us? About God's power? About God's judgment? We consider that this Jesus took 12 ordinary, uneducated men and literally revolutionized, revolutionized the entire world. Would we consider that and maybe trust his power? With the hard questions about judgment that we don't trust God in, like why does evil exist, are they not swallowed up by the glory of the cross? Are they not drowned in the shadow of what Jesus did for us? How can we not trust his love and intentions when he was willing to die on our behalf to ransom us from our sin? There's a poetic beauty to this story, guys. I, it's, it's too beautiful to have been made up. No one could have come up with this. This grand epic story of humanity that one man came in and through one act of disobedience, death spread to all. But God, being gracious and merciful, sent a second Adam, sent someone else to give it another shot, to stand on behalf of humanity 
and pass where Adam failed. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's, um, sometimes things like that are better expressed through poem and song than they are through uh, prose. And so I'm going to get a little vulnerable here. I'm going to read a poem that I wrote for you. Now, I've, uh, I've tried to convince Nick to turn this into a song um, before, and he has, he has denied that request so far. But, um, so if you like it, you can put some heat on him. If you don't like it, you just need to keep that to yourself. Um, so I'm going to read this to you, and I, mean, I hope it hope it's, will help you in, just kind of enjoy the story to be on the screen, too, and, and we'll close with this. Forbidden fruit hung from the tree. They longed for it so desperately. When Adam took the fruit and ate, his condemnation was our fate. To my surprise, a second tree, a tree that was prepared for me, a tree on which Christ stretched his hands, and all along, it's what was planned. When Adam, first man of our race, was tested in that sacred place, he in the garden failed the test, and death passed down to all the rest. But Jesus Christ, the first and last, when tested in the garden passed, and righteousness was given me when Jesus died upon the tree. And now behold what wondrous grace the second Adam took my place. The second Adam took my place. If you don't know him, you will never have joy and fulfillment. That's all I can say. There's nothing greater than knowing this Jesus who took our sin, lived a life we couldn't live, and credited that to us so that we could be with his Father for eternity. Let's pray. God, thank you for this truth, this beautiful, beautiful story of one man causing death for all and then another man undoing that and bringing life for all who would trust in Jesus. Pray that we would embrace that truth and enjoy it today and we would be Grateful, even, even with some of the unanswered questions and about why this all happened to begin with and why the snake had to be there, um, would you just help us to just, just see the beauty of it, of your redemption, your work, and all that you've done. I pray in Christ's name, amen.